we stand in the presence of God's Word. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. This is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He asked, said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming. This is the word of the Lord. You know that we call three of the Gospels synoptics because they look alike. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are more similar to each other than is John's Gospel. All four of the Gospels tell us about John the baptizer, but the three synoptics see him a little differently from the way John saw him, understand his role a little differently from the way John understood his role. We call these Gospels the Gospel according to St. Matthew, according to St. Mark, to St. John, to St. Luke, because they are different, because these witnesses who told the story and told the story until someone finally wrote it down, saw things differently. One needs to look in the very first chapters of each gospel for signs of what will later become the major themes of that gospel. And I think here in the first chapter of John, we have clear indication of what John's going to tell us the rest of the way. For example... John is down at the Jordan River in the desert. Those who are authorities in the temple in Jerusalem have heard about him, about his preaching, about the crowds he's drawing to his preaching, and they send people down to find out who is he, what is he up to, what is this man doing? Are you the Messiah? I am not. Are you Elijah? A prophet who never died, as you recall, in the Old Testament. He's just taken up in a whirlwind to God. They believed he would come again just before Messiah. I am not. Are you the great prophet? I am not. In a few pages, Jesus will say, I am. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the light, I am the bread, I am the vine. Remember the name given to Moses at the burning bush. Eye, Asher, Eye, I am who I am. 
And John is trying to convince all who read his gospel account that the I am of the burning bush was in fact present in Jesus of Nazareth. Let's look at today's text. First thing underlined is there was a man sent from God. When Dr. Joel Pensera told the staff that he was willing to put together a devotional guidebook for all of us through this season of Advent, we were excited about that because he and others had done such a great job last year during Lent. And when our booklets arrived, I resolved that I would read one of them every day from the beginning of Advent until Christmas. And I did that for several days. And then one morning I was reading the appropriate one for the day. And it was so good, I read the next one. And it was so good, I read the next one and the next one and the next one. And I finished my little book. So I want to mention a couple of them to you. One of them was written by Sheila Parr. And Sheila wrote about the cradle. The cradle that will be here on Christmas Eve night. We have it in a good safe place here at the church because we know it's at least 116 years old. This cradle is not expensive. It was made out of cottonwood, the kind that grows along the banks of the Arkansas River. And the baby who first slept in this cradle was not named Jesus. His name was Paul. Paul was an infant when his father, a Methodist preacher named E.B. Chinoweth, was told by the bishop, I want you to load your young wife and your baby Paul into a wagon and ride more than 150 miles into Indian Territory to a little trading post on the bank of the Arkansas River called Tulsi Town. I want you to build a new Methodist church. Pastor Chinoweth helped this young wife of his up into the wagon. They put this little cradle with Paul in it in the back of that wagon, and they rove and drove more than 150 miles in that wagon, arrived here. No bridge across the Arkansas, just a raft that was pulled back and forth by cable for those needing to go west or come back east. He cut down poles and stuck them in the soft bank of the river and cut down bushy branches and put them for a little shelter from the sun, and they started having church. And 116 years later, we're still here. Christmas Eve at 2 o'clock, the cradle will be here. At 4 o'clock, at 6 o'clock, it will be here. As we build the tableau, Mary and Joseph and a baby, shepherds and wise men, with hymns and carols and scripture, spoken word, we will recall that baby. There was a man sent from God. As I read Sheila's devotional, it reminded me of the summer of 1980. Dale and I were in Little Rock, Arkansas, one of the hottest summers I ever remember. Our delegation from Texas were assigned to the Holiday Inn in downtown Little Rock, and it was so hot the whole air conditioning system had broken down. I mean Little Rock was having temperatures of 107, 108 degrees every day, and we had to go back to that room that had no air conditioning every night. We complained, we fussed, we asked for help. All the other downtown hotels were filled with other delegates. We were there to elect four bishops. And finally, on the last night, after midnight, the fourth one was elected, Dr. John Russell, pastor of Boston Avenue Church in Tulsa. 
Well, we were relieved. Four outstanding people have been elected bishops. Suddenly, a page handed me a note. When I opened it, it was from my bishop who said, go out the back door, around the building, in behind the curtain, immediately. I asked Gail, how do I look? We'd been sitting there for 16, 18 hours that day. I straightened my tie a little. I went out the back door, around the building, in behind the drape, and my bishop wanted to introduce me to the Bishop of Oklahoma. He asked me only a couple of questions and said, I'm glad to have met you, and turned and walked away. But my bishop said, I've just nominated you to be the new pastor at Boston Avenue Church. But don't get overly excited about that. He said, there will probably be 40 people nominated. I said, thank you very much. I'd never seen this church. I'd heard of it. I knew none of you. But two weeks later, I got a call from the Bishop of Oklahoma asking me if I would come and be your pastor. And then he said, we're going to do this the old-fashioned way. Dr. Russell's been elected a bishop. He's being trained to be a bishop. And then they have parties scheduled for him, a dinner, receptions. He has the right to all that time without your being in the way. Are we clear about this? If I hear that you've crossed the Red River, before the moving day I'm going to give you, I will nullify this appointment. I said, we're clear. We had a month to wait. A month. The day we'd been given for moving day, I was supposed to speak to all the public school teachers of Beaumont, Texas, to try to encourage them, inspire them to begin a new school year. I decided I'd been scheduled to do that for months. I'd go ahead and do it. So a little after 10 o'clock in the morning, Gail and I loaded three little children into two cars and started away for Tulsa, over 500 miles. We got here after dark. We had to stop and ask a service station attendant where the Boston Avenue Church was. And he told us how to get here. I was scared. I was afraid. The Bishop of Texas had already appointed somebody else to my church. There was no place for me back in Texas. It was with you or I had no place. I was frightened. I'd asked God over and over that long month. Will you be with us? Will you help us? I don't want to go without you. I don't want to cross the Red River without you. I need to believe I am a man sent by God. That Gail is a woman sent by God. But you see, the story of the Bible is that you are a woman sent by God. You are a man sent by God. All of us sent by God to this time and this place to do something significant. Number two, John was a witness. The word is martyria in Greek, from which we get the word martyr. And surely enough, his witnessing would end up in his having his head cut off, his head brought into a banquet place on a platter to satisfy those who were his enemies. To give witness was significant indeed. As I sat there that morning reading my devotional book, I came to one written by one of our young men named Ben Pascoe. Ben's mom sings in the choir every Sunday. His dad's always here. Ben was writing about his freshman year at Beloit College in Wisconsin. He's still a student there. I'd seen Ben grow up here. I saw him sing in all the different choirs. He's been in the Bay Troop performances. He's been in some of the Broadway shows. Bright kid, good-looking, energetic, enthusiastic, lots of life. 
In this devotional he wrote that when he got to Wisconsin, he really didn't know how bad Wisconsin winters are. And he discovered it started snowing in mid-November and it didn't melt till after Christmas. I mean, after Easter, every few days he said more snow and it just piled up and piled up for more than four months. Never got above freezing. And some nights the wind chills were 30 and 40 degrees below zero. He said just before Christmas, he was homesick. He had papers to write. He had exams to take. He had a piece by Mozart he was trying to learn. And he was pushing his way through this crowded quad. His students were moving from class to class. When suddenly right at noon, he heard a carol on of bells right down the street. And these bells were playing a hymn. And Ben writes, in my deepest heart, I started to sing that hymn. And it changed everything. You and I taught him that hymn. We taught him that hymn. We witnessed to a child who's become an outstanding young man, a Christian young man who recognizes the great music of the church and recognizes the God who inspired the greatest music of the church. Number three, the true light was coming into the world. It was coming into the world. I tell you, John said, there's one among you whom you do not know, the one coming into the world. Thirteen years ago, one of our Oklahomans, uh, Bishop Odin, had been elected from First United Methodist Church in Enid, Oklahoma, before that, had served eight years with real distinction, Bishop of Louisiana, and now had been reassigned to be the bishop in Dallas. I was at a meeting at Southern Methodist University one day, and I saw Bishop Odin. He motioned for me to come out of the little group I was talking with, and when I got over where he was standing, he said, I've got to make a change at First United Methodist Church in Dallas. Our downtown church really needs special new leadership. Now, I know you know what kind of minister we need from your experience in downtown Houston and downtown Tulsa. I want you to help me. Who is that person you would appoint to First Methodist Dallas? And I said without a hesitation, Dr. John Fiedler. He said, really? I said, you may not know Dr. Fiedler. He's not in your conference. He's in the Central Texas Conference, the headquarters in Fort Worth. He's the pastor of the First United Methodist Church in Hearst, Texas, about halfway between Dallas and Fort Worth. I preached for him some months before, and I said to Bishop Odin, he's young, he's good-looking, he's talented. I think he's the man. Well, I don't know how many people he may have talked to, but a few weeks later I read in the paper that the new pastor of First United Methodist Church in Dallas was Dr. John Fiedler. He's been there 13 years. Special friend. John Fiedler wrote recently to his congregation that his father-in-law died. Uh, John's wife, Sydney, is from Fort Worth. And he said uh, her father died in Fort Worth, so we all rushed to Fort Worth. And there was just a pall hanging over everything. I've been a minister a long time, he said, and of course I knew about these death situations, but this wasn't just a death, this was my wife's father. And everybody was sitting around, you could hear them sniffing from time to time, and suddenly the doorbell rang. 
Someone went to the door, and our daughter, he said, was standing there with her little toddler. She said, he said, this is an outstanding kid. He's just a toddler, but he is so full of life. He seems to be energized by people. And when he came in that door, every adult just wanted to squeeze him. And one picked him up and hugged him and talked to him. And another picked him up and hugged him and talked to him. And then a third and a fourth. And John said, I just sat there and watched. I tell you, that child changed everything. And then he wrote, there was another baby who came one time. The light of the world who changed everything. Number four. This, this, John said, I witness to that all may come to believe. I told you Dr. Rudolf Bultmann was one of the great German theologians of the last century who used one expression so many times that when his works were finally translated into English, the translator simply started using a capital A, capital R, authentic revealer, authentic revealer, authentic revealer, he wrote over and over and over. And here he says, this is the first time in John's Gospel of 96 times in John's Gospel that he will use the word believe. He wrote right near the end of his Gospel, I could have written more, but this I have written that you may come to believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of God and through believing have life in his name. The other morning I was reading a newspaper and it asked a question. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, what song in all of history, in any language, has sold more records and CDs than any other? Guinness says, White Christmas. Of all the songs ever written or composed, White Christmas has sold, they said, more than 100 million. It was first performed in 1941. It was composed by Irving Berlin. Irving Berlin was not a Christian. He was a Russian Jew. Born in Russia, but brought to America by his family as soon as they could save enough to get out of Russia. They were poor, changed their name. His first name had been Israel, it was changed to Irving, so they could blend in with the majority neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York, who were Gentile. A lot of Jews, more Gentiles. And so Irving Berlin's first experiences with American Christmases were as an outsider. But he came to appreciate the holiday very much and how it changed the people around him, how people's behavior changed in late December. And then one year he and his wife had a little boy, named him Irving Jr. He got very sick and on Christmas Eve night the child died. Irving Berlin later wrote a song he called White Christmas. It's going to be featured in a movie starring Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire. But while the movie was in production, 
the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and all production stopped. Seventeen days later, Bing Crosby was doing a live radio show and decided to sing this new song he had learned for the movie. First time anyone else had ever heard it. Not recorded yet, he just sang it live 17 days after Pearl Harbor. It was an instant hit. And since 1941, December 1941, it has sold over 100 million recordings. Carl Sandburg, the great poet, wrote about that song years ago and he said, you have to remember that when people first started hearing the song, they didn't realize Irving Berlin didn't really have much musical training, that he composed on the black keys of the piano, and that he gave too much attention to some words when he should have given more attention to other words. In that first line, he gives the whole note to I'm and white instead of Christmas. But then Carl Sandburg said, the people who heard it knew that thousands of young men were being rushed off to war in the South Pacific where there would be no snow, palm trees, steamy jungles of death. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. And Carl Sandburg said, stop and think about it. Beautiful, white, slowly floating down snow. It covers blood and mud and sin and death. <laughs>